My sense, this is one of the reasons I'm an American optimist, is that just as with the Soviet Union, most conventional wisdom exaggerates the strength of the Chinese system, is taken in by the propaganda, and doesn't see the rot within. Uh, my optimism tells me that the Chinese system is in much bigger trouble than the most people in the West realize. Welcome to the American Optimist. I'm excited to have Neil Ferguson with us today. Uh, Neil's a friend, and he's also one of the great living historians and economists. And, and from my point of view, you've written over a dozen very popular books, and you've taught at Oxford and Harvard, and, and you're at Stanford at Hoover now as well. And excited to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in America and the world today. Your latest book is called Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. This is the American Optimist. I understand Doom is an ironic title. So it you, is. you don't think we're doomed. No, we're not doomed, but we're kind of preoccupied with doom as a species. We love talking about the end of the world, all the great religions have a kind of apocalyptic end. And uh, you've got a, a new millenarian uh, movement at the moment, which is the uh, radical environmentalist movement, which says the world is going to end in 10 years, I think. Uh, and what's interesting is that, of course, the world doesn't end nearly as often as we predict that it will end. In fact, it hasn't ended. We do have disasters, though, to contend with. And, and these are the problem because they don't come with any much predictability anyway. And we're constantly taken by surprise by disasters. That's really the thing we have to worry about not the end of the world, in just the same way that we have a kind of ambivalent relationship to death. I mean, we kind of know that death is inevitable, but we try not to think about it too much. Uh, and then when we're confronted with a sudden increase in our risk of death, we go from complacency to panic without really finding the middle ground in between. That's what the book is about. We, see, we, see, we, we seem like we panicked a lot more than usual the last couple of years versus almost any other time in history, right? Like, what, what, why is that? It's an interesting question. I mean, I think part of the reason is that we had some pretty sweet decades in, ter in terms of improving. So we've all gone soft, basically. We, we are. Compared with my grandfather's generation, my grandfather's fought in the world wars. Uh, they had to contend with the Great Depression. Infectious disease was a part and parcel of life in the 1950s. Uh, and so by comparison, we are quite soft and we do expect, we almost regard it as guaranteed that we'll live into our 80s and regard death as really some kind of terrible swindle that's been perpetrated that we want to blame on something. Historically, people didn't think that at all. They thought they'd be lucky to get... 40s, 50s, 60s. If you read Shakespeare, death is ubiquitous. Uh, people frequently die uh, at a young age, either through violence or misfortune. We, we've got accustomed to a very low-risk environment. We have a culture of safety uh, that has become all pervasive in most Western civilizations. We have a bureaucracy that's principal objective so, so, is to minimize risk. So, so, you know, whenever something's too successful in a company or whatnot, it gets comfortable and then sometimes it gets surprised and hit and declines. And you have this pattern in history of the rise and fall of civilizations. Are we, are we past our peak? Are we soft and declining? Or is, is there another up leg coming at some point? Or how do we get there? Well, one of the key arguments in Doom is that we don't really have cycles of history much as we would like to find them. I mean, it's a constant quest to find the cycle of history, because if we can only find that, we'll be able to predict the next cycle. Unfortunately, history is not at all. It doesn't really cyclical. work that way. We, we, just, we, have, we project that onto it, but there's not really a rise and fall. Well, there's too much random stuff going on, like the disasters I mentioned earlier. It's also the case that the civilizations you alluded to are very, very complex systems. I mean, if a big corporation's a complex system or a city is a complex system, well, a civilization is a vast complex system. But they do system. have special interests. They can get in charge and they can rule things for their own good, but not 
not for the good of everyone else and that can cause decline in different metrics, right? Yes, except decline is reversible. I mean, you go through bad patches, but that doesn't mean you're going to kind of expire. You see, the thing is that complex systems aren't like us humans. Yeah, we are young, then we get to our prime and then we kind of decay. And there's just no way around that unless yeah. maybe you're Peter Thiel. But the rest of us kind of have to reckon with that. That's not how complex systems work. They can last a very, very long time and seem to be in equilibrium. And then a very small perturbation causes them to, causes them to fall apart. So the key thing to recognize is that the real pattern in history is not rise to zenith and then gradual decline. It's, it's quite different from that. A complex system can have a very pat, a rough patch, then it can stabilize, it can seem to be in equilibrium, and then it can fall apart very suddenly. That's a completely different way of thinking about things, but I think it's much more an accurate description of how civilizations uh, have fared. There is no average lifespan of a civilization. So, 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 so you, you had a book called The Great Degeneration, and you talked about how a lot of our a lot of our institutional decay with our education system and you know with other things that are kind of generating in America and obviously obviously we're talking a lot about the need to build new institutions so it's, how, how does that fit into that point of view because you, you are seeing some some decay that we need to counter in some of these areas the reason I wrote the great degeneration is that it's fixable but we do have to recognize the pathologies if you have an excessively interventionist regulatory bureaucratic state you will end up with suboptimal outcomes yep. if you allow public finances to become essentially transfers from uh, the the young generation to the older, that too will be dysfunctional. We are giving all our money from the young to the old right now. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the great generation tried to identify the things that were going wrong with the United States and to suggest that they were fixable because if you think declinism is just the way it works, you're going to be fatalistic. The truth is, to give another example, the British Empire had some very rough patches. You might have thought between Yorktown and the Battle of Jena that it was game over, but actually its greatest years lay ahead of it. And I think the United States is in a similar position. It can choose to decline and fall by making the wrong decisions, but it's certainly not too late to fix the pathologies of the administrative state or of a completely skewed system of how, public How, how do we fix it? Are there new platforms or technologies, or, or what, what are the ways we fix these things? I think technology is crucial, and I don't say that just because you're in the technology business. When I look around the world and ask, for good governance. Who is doing this well? Who, for example, handled the COVID crisis well? Interestingly, it was the very tech-savvy Taiwanese government, which has its own technology minister, the amazing Audrey Tang, that was able very quickly to figure out how to do mass testing, had a contact tracing system they didn't even need to use last year because they did such a good job of containing the virus. I think technology is the way we get away from the 20th century bureaucratic system, which I think has now become a real impediment to the stable functioning of the United States, to something that's much more responsive to citizens' needs. And yep. Audrey Tang said to me just the other day on the phone, the key is to use technology to empower citizens, not to empower the state, not to empower the I, I agree. There's a lot of processes of the regulatory state and bureaucracy and otherwise that could be encoded in technology and become more dynamic and transparent. Exactly. That's, that's and, and empower citizens, give them a sense that, in fact, the government is there to serve them, which, of course, when a bureaucracy takes over, it's not. So, I mean, related to this, going back to things that are functional, when you, in, your, in your book, Civilization, you, you attribute the rise of Western civilization to six killer apps, right? So it's stuff like competition, the scientific method, the rule of law, modern medicine, is, uh, and uh, consumerism and, and work ethic, I think. That's right. And uh, cheating, I, I thought I was notes. the only person I could remember this. <laughs> I was cheating, I have notes. But, but uh, 
you know, if, if, if so, so are, I mean, are those still killer apps that are still really key? And are have any of those broken because of some of these things that are breaking things? Are there other ways we can reinvigorate them? Part of the point of writing civilization was to show that it's basically open source, and yep. any civilization. Oh, a lot of people any, copied ours, basically. Right. It's yeah. totally downloadable. And yeah. once the Chinese figured that out, they downloaded at least four of those killer apps. They didn't really want political competition, and they definitely don't want the rule of law because the Chinese Communist Party can't survive with those things. Yeah. But the other stuff, the scientific method and so forth, the consumer society, they were very happy uh, to download and they have the work ethic uh, in, in a great quantity now. Do we still have all six of those? No, or I, th missing? I think we have a problem and I think our operating system looks increasingly like it needs to be uh, renewed. because we, we need more competition. I think, yes, we, mu we, have, we have in some domains at least much less competition than would be healthy and I think that's a good example. The rule of law is really the rule of lawyers now. It's very expensive to use the US legal system. There's a great deal of abuse of of taught law. And so we don't really have the rule of law in its original common law yeah. design. And I, and I guess you're missing a scientific method too if you can't openly debate and discuss things in common. Well, in exactly. Common. I mean, yeah. science emanates from free thought, free speech, the, the readiness to use experimental method to test out hypotheses that might seem nuts. All of that's become much harder because our educational system has been captured now almost from the very bottom, from kindergarten to grad school, by an ideology which is profoundly hostile to the science scientific method and increasingly regards science itself as some kind of manifestation of white supremacy. Yeah, and I, I guess work ethics pretty strong in some parts of our society. I guess if you pay people not to work, that challenges that aspect as well. Yeah, the work ethic's pretty crucial. A hundred years ago, people thought that there was some kind of natural monopoly on the work ethic in, in North America. Max mm -hmm. Weber thought that the Protestant ethic was the key, and that turned out to be wrong. Now that really hard workers are, are very They're often in East Asia, India and China and other places. But they there. can come here and, yeah. and, and work just as hard and be hugely productive. Well, you and, I, you and I are working pretty hard most of the time. Well, you know, it's not like you can't work hard in the United States, but what we're doing, and it's very unfortunate, is creating a series of poverty traps for people at the lower end of the income distribution. And it seems like the Biden administration is just going to add to these these systems of entitlement that end up, in fact, trapping people in the bottom quintile. So, so, how, do, so, so how, do, how do we how do we fix it? What should, what should they be doing? Instead of spending $4 trillion doing whatever they're doing, if you, if you were in charge, what, what, what would we be doing to, to reboot these apps? Well, I mean, I'll give you an example. Emergency spending when you've got a pandemic and you've locked down the economy because you screwed up the first two months of the pandemic, you need to do that. You do not need to continue that level of spending as the economy rapidly recovers because the pandemic is ending because you have a, su a successful vaccination program. So we're already in the business of overheating the economy. And if Larry Summers, the high priest of secular stagnation, thinks we're overheating the economy, we're overheating the economy. There's going to be an inflation problem. It's already visible. So they're creating needlessly a problem uh, for themselves by thinking that they have to keep doing this aggressive fiscal stimulus. And I think the reason they're doing that is that they see the opportunity to expand the federal government to an even larger share of GDP. They talk about infrastructure. I'm very skeptical that the investments such as they are will significantly increase the pro product productive uh, capital of uh, the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it may in fact be a wash we might end up investing 
uh, in some technologies when we could, in fact, have let uh, the shale gas revolution deliver uh, an, an equally good, if not better, outcome for productivity. So I think that the list of mistakes is long, Joe, but you asked me what should they be yeah, doing. Should be, yeah. And I think the answer is actually relatively simple. It's what I try to argue in The Great Degeneration. That there needs to be a, an attack on the regulatory state, which is a profoundly dysfunctional entity, vast numbers of government agencies. Yeah, there's, no there's no check on, on it. None at all. And in fact, we see that they fail at the job they're supposed to do. The public health you bureaucracy think, failed with COVID. You think everyone kind of realized how badly the regulators failed in the last year? That might maybe it's more popular energy around What's that? What's sad is that there hasn't been a realization that the time and again in crisis after crisis, going all the way back to 9-11, this large bureaucracy with all its different agencies has failed. It, it failed in the case of the financial crisis. It yeah. failed with COVID. And it's not for lack of planning. They have any number of regulations and pandemic preparedness plans and bank capital adequacy regulations. It's just that they don't work. So we need to be much more sceptical about the claims of big government. And we need to be working hard to replace this antiquated way of doing things with something that is more uh, tech-enabled and more efficient and less costly. Shrinking the government should still be the goal. Unfortunately, in the crisis of the last year and a half, that argument has, I fear, decisively been lost. But there are other things that are actually lower-hanging fruit. We have a pathologically dysfunctional system of education, particularly in public schools, because the power of the teachers' unions is too great. It's a vested interest. It's hurting our kids, especially poorer kids. That's the kind of thing that a truly reforming administration would be taking on. Of course, it's not going to happen. We'd be giving poor kids choice, basically. Exactly. And, and we know that that's actually popular with the kind of families who, who are stuck with lousy public schools, but it's precisely what isn't being delivered. And unfortunately, neither party has really addressed this uh, in, in a serious way uh, in all the time that I've been in the United States, which is two decades now. It's interesting as so many of my friends are talking about these issues now, and, and yet it, it, hopefully they're coming to the surface to the point where you can fight for them. Well, uh, Lenin said, the worse, the better. Well, we've certainly got it worse. Uh, <laughs> the question is, does that lead to some improvement at some point? And I think it'll only be when we rethink, and this applies particularly to Republicans, we rethink our critique of the administrative state. Because at this point, I think we almost have to go back to first principles. First principles when it comes to education, first principles when it comes to legal reform and criminal justice reform, yep. and first principles above all when it comes to governance and how we deliver public services. Well, to well going, going back to first principles, let's talk about first principles of money. A lot of what we're talking about here is you have a, this big centralized thing top down in the middle of the country in a very Soviet way is running things and breaking things. And we were trying to do things bottom up, distributed, you know, let people decide independently. Uh, that's that's what cryptocurrency is about, too. So a lot of people are very excited about this decentralized finance and about taking power away from the Fed, taking power away from governments and finance. Well, what, are, what are your thoughts on cryptocurrency? You wrote The Ascent of Money and talk, talked a lot about this. Is, is crypto what's next for, for money over the next coming decades? Crypto's not quite money yet at the moment. It's a lot of, of digital assets. Uh, and, and I think that's an extremely healthy sign that we still have the capacity to achieve financial evolution. It's obvious that the fiat system is reaching some kind of critical threshold. Uh, they, the seem, they seem to be accelerating it with the, what they're trying to do right now. Massively rapid monetary growth, the explicit financing of government deficits that are running in trillions of dollars every year, as far as the eye can see. Yeah. You said that the, system, the 
the existing system is going to be driven to breaking point. And it's lucky that some kind of alternative ecosystem is evolving. And I'll give you a historical analogy, Joe. This was what it was like in the days of the Habsburg Empire, uh, when a debased uh, coinage, uh, this was the great inflation of the 16th and 17th century, ceased to be useful, really, in the realm of trade. What did merchants do in the early modern period? They used bills of exchange. Now, bills of exchange to finance trade were bits of paper. They were authenticated by uh, merchant signatures. It was a decentralized financial system. The state was not involved, and it was the key to the first phase of globalization. Was there a lot of, must have been a lot of fraud if people were doing this. Well, of course, uh, the trouble with any new system is that it's volatile because it's experimental, uh, and it has security uh, gaps, which are, are obviously going to but be they made, But they made it stable enough to work. Ultimately, bills of exchange became the basis of international trade finance right through the 18th, 19th, and into the 20th century. And people forget when they say there's something new about decentralized finance. No, the original decentralized finance was the basis of the, the expansion of global trade that was absolutely crucial to the Industrial Revolution. So in some ways, I think of, of Bitcoin particularly, but crypto and decentralized finance generally, as a new tech-enabled version of that stateless monetary system that evolved to finance trade. So you're, so, so you're reminding me, if you're, we're talking about the 17th, 18th, 19th century finance, you've written a lot about the Rothschilds. I think you got access to their records and you wrote some really cool things. Uh, you know, I guess a couple questions. One, is, is, is there something similar going on with the concentration of wealth now to anything we saw back then? And, and are there any lessons we can learn from the Rothschilds and, and from how, how, think, how, you know, how, how they worked in those times? It's, it's interesting because although income distribution has clearly widened to the point that it's reminiscent of the 1920s, Wealth distribution has not got as, as unequal as it was in, in the 19th century. Still, I think there are things that we can learn. So from, 19th century is much, much more unequal. It is, yeah. I mean, because there really are a very large proportion of people with nothing at all. I mean, with grinding poverty that we can barely imagine. Uh, so we have moved into a different world in which significant amounts of uh, redistribution are being done, but also people have some capital at yep. a much lower level of, of, uh, of the distribution. But what's interesting when you look back at the 19th century is the role that this extraordinarily wealthy family who made their money from nothing started in the ghetto of Frankfurt in the late 18th century. Once they had become what they were, which was really the gatekeepers of the international bond market, they were not content with mere wealth. Uh, and I'm fascinated, it was one of the things that motivated me to write the book, by the extraordinarily creative way that the Rothschilds engaged in philanthropy. They did an immense amount to promote the cause of Jewish emancipation. Mm -hmm. They thought of themselves as kind of informally the Jewish royal family. Yep. And this was an enormously important achievement. It's a time when Jews had very, very limited rights mm -hmm. and were subject to all kinds of discrimination. So they did a lot of work to help, to help Jews get more rights in different countries. That's right. But they also did a great deal of philanthropic work that was uh, was general and therefore available to, to the non-Jewish community. So I think the lesson when I look back on that book is, first of all, they're part of a massive financial network that's absolutely crucial to to making a glo global economy possible and spreading industrial technology to the wider world. Yeah, they, they, their information networks back then were pretty impressive. Yeah. Absolutely. It was one of the keys to their success. But their real historical significance is not just that they made a lot of money. It's the fact that once they'd done that, they had a very powerful sense of social responsibility and vision. They had a vision of a society in which Jews were no longer a despised minority, but were fully-fledged members of society who could take their seats uh, in the House of 
of Commons in London who could be, who could enjoy true civil rights. So people sometimes forget that the Jews had to have this fight for civil rights you, in the 19th century. You think century. Rothschild's key in, in, in England of making the Jews more equal there, they were, they were successful? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, th this was an amazing achievement considering that the Jews had been expelled entirely from England in the Middle Ages. Uh, by the mid-19th uh, century, Lionel de Rothschild can take his seat as a member of parliament in the House of Commons and, in, and is able to insist that he does not take uh, his oath uh, as a member of parliament on, on the New Testament. Is this the same guy who also had the zebras pulling his carriage? No, no, that's a later member of the Rothschild uh, family. Okay, they okay. also get into zoology. Uh, <laughs> but actually, the the next generation of Rothschilds, there's a Rothschild in the House of Lords. Yep. This is a Lord, really important story that we sometimes forget. I mean, one notices these days uh, hostility to Jews and a tendency to treat Jews as if they were never at any point a discriminated against minority. Well, reading my history of the Rothschilds will remind you of just how long a road it was from the Frankfurt ghetto. Yeah, being, being brought up Jewish, you're still reminded of some of the history and of what the Christians in Europe did. There's still a little bit of a sore spot. Yeah, yeah as indeed <laughs> there should be. In Doom, I point out that in the great pandemic of the mid-14th century, the Black Death, attacks on Jewish communities were one of the ways in which popular panic manifested itself. I mean, are the Jews actually in danger again of this, or is it going to be a different different groups that people attack if, if, things, if there's trouble? I'm troubled by the manifestations of anti-Semitism that I see in the United States. States, uh, in Europe as well as in, in the wider world. It's 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 really something that for me as an historian is is deeply alarming. I'm not a Jew myself, but I've spent a lot of my career as an historian thinking about the fate of the Jews of Europe, who remember after the time of the Rothschilds, after that extraordinary achievement of emancipation, became the victims of the worst, most systematically organized genocide in history, the achievement of what seemed to be a highly sophisticated society, namely the German Empire. So nobody should trivialize anti-Semitism. Nobody sh should assume that it's somehow gone away or been trumped by other issues of, uh, of, of say, uh, racial inequality. The problem of anti-Semitism is a persistent one through history, and it can never be dismissed lightly. It is ironic that there's a pandemic and then this is going on again right now. It does seem like a, like a pattern there. The, that is pattern recognition. And indeed, there's some very interesting research showing that sites where there were anti-Semitic attacks in the 1340s were also sites centuries later of uh, support for National Socialism during the rise of Hitler. So there are some really striking patterns uh, in the historical data on this issue. So maybe circling back a little bit, because it's called the American Optimist, I want, I want to hear a little bit more from you about like what's, what, what's going to happen in the next 20, 30 years. Are you, are you optimistic in 2050 we'll have a totally different set of problems than we have now, or is, are, are some of these trends things we're going to be dealing with for quite a long time? I'm an optimist in the sense that I, I chose to come to the United States. I wasn't just born here, and I still think that the prospects are brighter here uh, than most native-born Americans realize. The United States has a bunch of secret sauces. It has a unique operating system politically that, despite those who predicted Weimar America, withstood the upheavals of the last uh, few years just as the founders intended. So I'm an optimist about the political system continuing to function. So we're, so we're, we're 30 times wealthier than we were 200 years ago for the median person. Is it going to be 
Are they going to be like that again? Is the future 100, 200 years from now just completely different and positive and brighter? Is there Potentially. I mean, remember, there are all kinds of things that we still have to exploit in the realm of technology, and particularly biotechnology. If mRNA vaccines were the key uh, to defeating COVID, which I think they were, there's a whole lot more that that yep. technology still has to do. My sense is that the, the, there are still many more extraordinary breakthroughs to come. And those who say, no, 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 we've reached a plateau. It's probably the beginning of decline. It's going to be stagnation. Uh, our grandchildren will be worse off than us. I think they're getting it wrong. And of course, people were saying exactly those things at the beginning of the 19th century, massively underestimating the impact uh, of technological change uh, in every domain. Because remember, technological change ch changes everything. It changes food supply, it changes medical care. It doesn't just produce cheap shirts uh, or cheap uh, widescreen TVs. So I remain an optimist that we still have a lot more uh, it may be slightly higher hanging fruit, but a lot more fruit to harvest from science and the application of science to the problems that we confront as a species. Do you think there's going to be competition in government around and outside of the U.S.? Because, you know, a lot of people for the first time are moving out of California, out of New York. Obviously, people always have done this, but recently it's been a huge wave in the last couple of years. And, uh, and are you people going to be going to charter cities and free cities? Is there, are there new countries going to evolve? Is, is that, is that, is, are things like that likely in, in the coming years, or, or is that silly? I think the federal system will continue to do what it says federal to give people choices. Yeah. I think outside the United States, it is much harder than some of my more radical libertarian friends imagine to create a new state. Uh, small states are very vulnerable. That's one of the lessons of history. It's big empires that call the shots. And you're only a viable city-state as long as the big empires ha are happy for you to be one. Ask Singapore. So my, my sense is that the most important competition politically is actually within Between a decentralized system like the yep. United States. Well, that's what that's what with our sister institute, we're working in eight states to pass laws right now. That's my bias as well. As you, you fix the different states, you teach and it, them it's, the the, it's one of the keys to the, the superiority of the American system over the more centralized states that we see in the rest of the world, not least in China, which, although we are told, told again and again, is the power of the future, the rising power, suffers from the chronic pathologies of excessive centralization and lack of any accountability through a free press or the rule of law. My sense, this is one of the reasons I'm an American optimist, is that just as with the Soviet Union, most conventional wisdom exaggerates the strength of the Chinese system, is taken in by the propaganda, and doesn't see the rot within. Uh, my optimism tells me that the Chinese system is in much bigger trouble than the most people in the West realize. And the reason for that is that it is in inherently impossible for one man at the head of one party to run such a large proportion of humanity uh, with the ideology of, of Marxism-Leninism, even if it is tempered by he's some He's not Marx really forces. a Marxist and Leninist, is he? He's, he's a, he's, isn't he like some kind of fascist capitalist? Well, I actually think that Marxism-Leninism is much more important to Xi Jinping than most Western observers realize. Really? I mean, they are still reading uh, Marx and, and Engels on the Politburo Standing Committee. I had uh, was explained to me recently by the head of research of the party wow. uh, in Beijing. And, and she is much more ideological than I think is realized in the West because people hear his speeches for Western audiences at Davos, but they don't actually hear what she is saying in Chinese to Communist Party cadres. And, and when one looks closely, in fact, Xi Jinping has turned the clock back ideologically and is dialing back the room for maneuver of the market elements in the Chinese system. And if you don't believe me, ask Jack Ma how life is going. Do you actually, do you actually believe that? I heard there's like 70-something billionaires who have disappeared or something in the last decade. Is it, is it true that there's just a lot of 
powerful, successful people there being kind of taken out if they're not going along? I couldn't give you an exact number, but there's no question that the party is extremely ruthless in asserting its power over the uh, the new power, the new, new China that's arisen particularly in the world of, of technology. So this, again, is not transparent. We don't really see clearly what's going on. Uh, but my sense is that we exaggerate how capitalist the Chinese system is. We forget that in the end, it's a one-party state and state-owned enterprises really dominate the system. And if you try to challenge that, as Jack Ma did, sooner or later, be very you're going to be rolled back. They don't, they don't seem to be very into creative destruction and in, in, in Schumpeter there, huh? No. I mean, although, of course, um, there's Some been plenty there. of destruction that was part of the point of Ma Zedong's revolution. It wasn't very creative. And they trashed their, their traditional culture in the Cultural Revolution. People in the West don't realize that that left a vacuum that has really only be, been filled by the, the pursuit of wealth. But the chronic corruption of the party, which has only been partly addressed by Xi Jinping, remains a, a central problem and the reason why I think ultimately this system will lose legitimacy, especially as the growth rate comes So if we're going to manage to stay a free country, it's, we're not necessarily going to be overtaken by the, by the Chinese system. At the end of civilization, I said the principal threat to Western civilization is not from outside, it is not from China, it is from within. And if we choose in our schools and universities to relentlessly attack our civilization and its values, then we'll only have ourselves to blame if we, if we have basically hit this. And if we embrace the core values of our civilization, and the killer apps, then maybe we'll still be pretty well off. Absolutely. They, they can save even this generation from itself. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe.